following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to continue our study of the book of 1 Timothy. And as we're doing this, I think it's important, especially in the text that we are in today, that we remember that the book of 1 Timothy was written to a pastor. Um, It was written to a guy that was serving a local congregation. And it was written as well, intended that Timothy would take these very personal comments made from Paul, and then he would stand before his congregation and he would read these to his congregation. So I was trying to think all week long of of an analogy that maybe would fit with this, and I really haven't come up with a good one, so I'm going to give you the only one I've come up with. It'd be similar to a CEO hiring you to be a manager of a large corporation or a group of people, and you've got a a big job on your hands, and he gives you a letter with your um, job description on it, lays out all the details to it, lays out the seriousness of the task, gives it to you and says your first assignment is you have to read this to the people that you're managing just so they can be freshly aware of what it is your job is and what you're to do. That's what it's like reading the book of First Timothy. It's, it's like reading a, a job description that the Apostle Paul from God gave to young Pastor Timothy in this city of Ephesus and then told him, read it to your people so they can know exactly what it is they can expect of you as well. And I have to be honest with you that when I read First Timothy... It's a very personal book to me. Uh, When I started in ministry at the age of 19, I had a a pastor that was mentoring me that still to this day mentors me periodically. And he told me as much as I could as a young man to read through 1 and 2 Timothy and make them my very own. So when I read the words of Paul to Timothy, I can almost hear Nick Harris, if you will, saying these same things to me over and over again. And and, and what this tells us is that God not only wants pastors to know the instructions that he has for them, he wants their congregations to know what instructions that God has for them. That's why I've entitled the sermon this morning, um, Being a Good Pastor, and in parentheses, and Christian. Because I think it's important for us to know these things. And listen, we want you to be aware of this stuff if you're a regular here at CLF. We We don't want to hide anything from God's word to you. We want to open God's word and say, this is what God expects out of your pastors. But also, as we're going to see here next week and the following weeks, what God expects out of you on how you treat your pastors and how you care for your pastors. And so, but if you're looking for a church, we're glad you're here. We know that several people have been coming and checking out CLF. You've gone to different places around town or the community to find out where a good church might land. This will give you some idea on what you might be looking for in a local church and what to expect out of a pastor from a local church. That's what we're going to study this morning. So let's stand together. We're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 16. And let me apologize ahead of time because if I stumble over words here, it's because I have memorized this in the New American Standard. And I will many times read the ESV. That's what I've used to preach out of. But I will get... New American Standard makes sense, so just bear with me as we go, okay? If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. 
being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, and your word is so clear about how we as leaders and pastors and how we as the church should respond to leaders. You have given us your word to direct traffic in the church, and we thank you for that. We pray today that you would open our eyes to how we can grow and we can serve your people, how we can serve one another, how we can care for pastors and care for for Christians in the church. Help us to do this well today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, if you're new with us, you probably got an outline when you walked in the door, and the outline will have a big idea on that. And here's kind of the big idea that I hope we're going to capture today from this text. And it's this. It's, It's very simple. God has called pastors to watch their life and their teaching, and he has called Christians to watch their life and what they're being taught. God has called pastors to watch their life and their teaching, and he has called Christians to watch their life and what they're being taught. Now, before we begin, let me just give a a couple personal remarks about this before we jump into this. Um, So I started ministry in 1989. For those of you, you were not even born then. I know it's really old. I was 19 years old. I remember vividly when I was asked to be the youth pastor of our church, there was a man in our church who asked this question of our senior pastor. Why are we asking a young punk to be our youth pastor? That was the question in the congregational meeting of which Nick Harris put his hand on my shoulder and said, Brother Willie, when others see a shepherd boy, God might see a king. I'll never forget those words. And in that moment, I remember thinking to myself, I don't know what I'm doing. I love the Bible. I like to talk about the Bible. My very first Bible study was with one one high school kid. His name was Joel Morrison. And Joel was at the time a rebel who turned his life over to Christ. And four years later, after I left the church to move to Oregon, uh, I left a very wonderful, flourishing youth ministry of almost 150 to 200 children. And it was amazing to watch God get at work in families as we were serving them with the gospel. But one of the things that happened in my young years of ministry, and it happened until the year of 2002, was I never wanted and never asked for to be a senior pastor. The reason for that is I told my wife, and she would ask you this regularly, during my early years of ministry, I said to her, I would never wish being a senior pastor on my worst enemy. And the reason for that is because as I watched churches 
interact with pastors and watch pastors interact with their churches, I never saw anything that looked very healthy. It was always concerning to me, and it always bothered me. I never wanted to be treated poorly in ministry. I just simply wanted to teach God's word, love God's people, and teach the gospel and see what might happen and trust God with the results. In 2002, we happened to come in contact with a denomination of people that their churches were grateful for their pastors and their pastors were happy and grateful for their people. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. And what I saw was men and congregations who deeply believe the words I'm going to preach to you today. These words for my entire ministry have been something I've tried to abide myself by because these are These are authoritative words given by God on what a pastor should do. But they also reveal something, that when when the church leans in, you find happy, healthy pastors, and you find happy, healthy churches. And so this morning as we talk about this, these are personal words. These These are things, to be honest with you, that it's hard to preach. It is like saying to you, again, here's the job description, hold us accountable to this. But I also want you to look at it from another angle. That God is talking to you as a church. He's speaking to you about something. So let's start this morning with the first point in our outline, which is the seriousness of the task. And we're going to start in an odd place, which is at the very bottom of the text. I want you to notice verse 16 with me, where Paul seems to make a summary statement to Timothy about what he's just said. And the summary statement is two things. Pastors are to do two things. They are to watch their life and to watch what they teach. The word watch is has the idea behind it of, of, of a guardian or a person who is in a watchtower watching over a city. Timothy and all pastors are to be watchful. They cannot be neglectful or careless or haphazard. And you will notice what he's talking about, about your life, how you live, and what you teach. Now notice why they must do this. And this is the, the stunning statement of verse 16 by doing so by watching your life by watching what you teach you will save both yourself and your hearers now paul is not saying the pastor saves his people from their sins makes them accepted by god nor nor gives them forgiveness of sin only jesus does that only jesus lived perfectly in your place died in your place rose again from the dead and only jesus can offer you Forgiveness of sin. The pastor can't. He can just point you to the one who does. But the saving that Paul is talking about is the saving of the pastor and his people from the false teaching that Paul has been talking about in the book of 1 Timothy. Saving them from the deceitful temptations of the day and saving them from the cultural lies that might hinder them. And in so doing, watching his life, watching what he teach, it teaches, it will keep the pastor and his hearers from eternal repercussions. See, what the pastor teaches and how he lives his life are critical to the life of the church. Friends, we don't, we don't have to do much discussion or make a case for a pastor watching his life. If many of you are on Netflix right now, you're probably watching the Hillsong documentary of the downfall of some of the things going on in Hillsong. All of us can think of, or we've experienced firsthand, the devastating impact of pastors becoming immoral, overbearing, or controlling. When a pastor doesn't watch his life, there are terrible consequences. 
But we also know the sad commentary of pastors who veered from the truth centered on Jesus as the Savior, Redeemer, and King and begin to teach false gospels or at minimum just an error where they just got the wheel, steering wheel off just a little bit and just down a mile down the road, we're all in a ditch together. When a pastor veers from the truth, people are led astray and tossed back and forth by the winds of culture and compromise. A pastor must watch his life and what he teaches. See, I, I want you to see the seriousness of the task. You, you've got to see it. I mean, there, there is a temptation, a, a huge temptation in pastoral ministry to be funny, to be lighthearted, to be ultra creative. This is one of the knocks that people have had on my preaching through the years is, Dave, you're way too serious. You're, you're way too intense. You're way too, you know, passionate about these things. But there's a temptation. There's a temptation for pastors to always have a social justice cause and a new program to launch and a new vision to go capture some big hill on the horizon. Now listen, those things at times may have a place, but the pastoral ministry is serious business because we're dealing with issues of eternity. What one says and teaches as a pastor is weighty and it should be weighty. And it's important because it has eternity in it. And the way one conducts himself is important to that task. This is the reason why James would warn us. Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers. Why? Because God will judge teachers more strictly See, I've had friends that literally say to me, you're taking this too seriously, man. That's not in, that's not how God would treat you. My response is, have you read the Bible? It's why Charles Spurgeon, my historical hero, would say, when I stand in the pulpit, I do not tremble before the people that I stand before. I tremble before God's word, that I stand before the God of the universe who has spoken these words. There's a seriousness to the task. Friends, you want a pastor who understands that. And you'll know the seriousness of how he takes it by how seriously he watches his life. And he watches what he teaches. But don't let yourself off the hook here. Because what's implied is that you should be watching what you're taught. The book of Acts chapter 17, I think, gives us the best Portrait of how Christians should act when God's word is taught. The people of Berea, when the apostle Paul came in, notice what it says about them. They were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Can you imagine Paul coming and teaching us and us going, I wonder if this is true or not. That's what these people were doing. Christian, when you come to church, you are not to come with a lazy mind or a disconnected heart. And you're not to come and just simply say, hey, I trust Dave. I know Dave. I, I love Dave. I've been around Dave. I know what Dave's about. You had better come with an engaged mind and an engaged heart. And when God's word is sung and when it is taught, you are to examine it to see if it is true. And if it is true, then you should be applying what you're being taught. Why? Because so much is at stake. 
So much is at stake. You can read the book of James chapter 1 to find out the danger of just hearing the truth and not applying the truth. You begin to deceive yourself if you do those things. You are, you are to hear God's word, examine it if it's true, and then you're to apply what is being taught because there is so much at stake. See, there are many roles for pastors to carry in this world. Administration, pastoral visits, prayer, mediation, counseling, teaching, vision casting, you name the task. But this must remain very, very clear. We must encourage our pastors to watch their lives and what they teach. We must encourage it. We must equip it. We must exhort it. And if necessary, we must hold it accountable. We must keep guard on it, protect it, care for it, because it is so serious to the life of the church. And listen, at CLF, I can tell you this, for our history, that's what this church has done. They've made this very serious. They get it. You get it. You've always made room for this. You always know what to expect. And we can't thank God for you enough about that. Listen, when people come to church at CLF, one of the things we remark about in our Tuesday review is how much our people are leaning in to what's being taught. It's a hallmark of our church, and the care that is given for our pastors is amazing. You examine what we teach, and you work to apply it. We cannot thank God for you enough. But listen, we must never lose sight, never lose sight of the seriousness of the task. My friends will joke with me, I thought you only worked on Sundays, man. And people who know me well know that's not how this works. It is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week thing that you carry with you all the time. There's a seriousness to the task. Now let's turn our attention to the meat of the text, and we're going to see three things that Paul tells good Christians or good pastors and Christians to do. See, when we look at the text, we cannot say, well, this is for my pastors, so I'm excused from what Paul is teaching. But instead, I think we ought to look at it this way. If Paul meant this for pastors who are Christians, and I'm a Christian, then I should pay attention to what Paul is teaching to Christian people. So therefore, we want to lean in and find out what are the things Paul tells us to do in the text. Now, these three things will come up on the screen, but they're not on your outline, so you can write them out as we go. And the first thing you're going to notice is teach and learn the truth found in Jesus. Notice verse 6. When Paul wrote that if Timothy put these things before the brothers, he would be a good servant of Jesus. I have to ask first, what are these things? Well, these things are the things that Timothy has already addressed in, or Paul's already addressed in this letter. That Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. That there is no other savior between God and man than Jesus Christ. That the gender roles need to be functioning in order that would represent and reflect the Godhead. That leaders should be leading with humility. And there should be servants in the church who lean in to point people to Christ. And to watch out for any teaching that tempts you to trust in anything other than Jesus. These things are the things that Paul wants Timothy to put before the church. Now how is he to do that? Is this a billboard sign? What is he to do in putting these things before the church? Notice with me how often Paul mentions the word teach in this text. Verse 11, command and teach these things. 
Verse 13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and to teaching. Verse 16, he was to keep close watch on his teaching. See, the idea of proclamation, public proclamation in the church, is important to God because when God first revealed himself to man, what did God do? He spoke. And the way God reveals himself to us, one of the ways is through public proclamation of the word of God in the public setting of the church. And so we, the church is to proclaim the word of God or teach the word of God. And Timothy was to teach, and so are pastors in Christ's church. And they were to teach in such a way that as verse 10 tells us, that people would set their hope on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. Do you notice what Timothy is to teach? See, notice the God-centeredness of Paul's instruction to Timothy. Yes, Timothy was to teach, but he was to teach that God is a central being and a hope, and Jesus is the Savior, telling us that the central being and hope in the church must be God, not the pastor. You will know how important that is on the day that I die. Because you will make a decision if the church is central, if God is central to you in the church, or if Dave York is central to you in the church. The central being and hope in the church must be God, not the pastor. And the gospel of Jesus must be the foundation of the church, and God's word must be the authority of the church, not the church's bylaws or the pastor. See, when God is the central hope in the church, here's what it does. It keeps the worship and the attention right where it should be. The pastor's work is not about his gifts, his talents, or his creativity, or even his vision. The pastor is to present Jesus to his church over and over and over again. He is to teach the truth found in Jesus. As Martin Luther said, he is to bang one note over and over again until eternity. But again, implied in the pastor teaching this truth found in Jesus, implied is what? That Christians should be learning the truth found in Jesus. See, when God's word is taught with Christ as a centerpiece, here's what should be happening. Our hearts should be rejoicing within us. Worship should be springing from our lips. We should lean in when the truth centered in Jesus is taught. That's why we come to church, right? I, I don't know all the reasons why everyone here comes to church. I know why people in this church come to church. We come because we want more of Christ. We, 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 we would be disappointed and, and frustrated if we did not hear the gospel. We don't want all the glitz and the glamour and all the big stuff. We want Jesus laid before us because we have a world that's giving us all the time, six days a week. We come to church because we want more of Christ. A church that is taught the truth in Jesus finds her identity in Jesus, worships Jesus lives for Jesus and tells others about Jesus. A church that is centered on Jesus could care less about gifts, talents, or titles. We simply want Jesus to be more glorified as we faithfully teach and learn the truth found in Jesus. 
And I can hear my dear mentor, Nick Harris, in my mind. If you want to build a church, preach to them faithfully God's word every week and watch God do his work. Teach the truth. Learn the truth. Centered on Jesus. The second thing you'll notice Paul tells Timothy is to discipline yourself to be godly by looking to Christ. You'll see this in verses 7 and 8. He says to train yourself. That word is an athletic phrase for working out. The idea is that like an athlete who works out, watches what they eat, takes good care of their bodies, the pastor, and I would suggest, Paul would suggest, all Christians should be training themselves to look more and more like Jesus. However, we've got to be careful with this understanding of discipline because Paul has just talked about in our previous text of last week about deceptive discipline. That there is a type of discipline that misses the mark of what Paul is talking about here. See, we might get the idea that Paul's talking about discipline that makes us more like Jesus and we're going to miss the whole unique nature of looking to Christ to be disciplined. See, there is such a thing as deceptive discipline. Deceptive discipline is when we discipline ourselves and believe that discipline will make God accept us more than he does in Christ. Deceptive discipline seeks to gain what Christ has already achieved. And this is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about eternal hope in Christ informing and shaping our discipline rather than disciplining ourselves to gain eternal hope. Another way to put this is, Paul's talking about disciplining ourselves because we're made right with God in Christ, not so that we'll be made right with God in Christ. See, there's a big difference. And notice how Paul told Timothy in verse 7 to have nothing to do with silly fables or myths. Indicating to me that silly fables and myths have this false doctrine of performance in it. This is a reference to the fact that false teachers were in love with endless genealogies and people's heritages that made them become something before God or silly stories that had nothing to do with Jesus. See, it's also in reference to the fact that, listen, you're living in a world right now that it is incredibly consuming on pastors to keep up with the, the amount of information going on around the globe. I, I can't tell you the amount of pastors that I watch that get involved in endless discussions and debates online and get themselves away from the centrality of watching their life, watching the doctrine, and caring for their church. And the temptation is enormous. That's why, listen, I'm not on Facebook very often. If I am, I miss your baby announcement. Could you do me a favor and text me if you have a baby? Just so I'll know. I will not know on Facebook. I will not know if you have a medical emergency on Facebook. I don't see those things. You know why? The temptation is so immense to get involved in all these debates. I don't have time. Pastors don't have time to engage in all of this stuff of information. And Paul says, don't get sidetracked with that stuff, but rather do something different. Discipline yourself. Train yourself for godliness. See, bodily discipline, according to verse 8, is of little profit. You should watch what you eat. You should work out a little bit. You should go on a walk. But godliness holds a promise for this life and the next life. You realize, don't you, that the only currency you can spend in both lives is godliness. 
Your worldliness, being culturally engaged and culturally relevant, is not going to be spent in heaven. But godliness will be. You having a great Instagram account with thousands of followers is not going to follow you to heaven. But your godliness will. See, train yourself for godliness. Why? Because it has profit here and later. But don't miss verse 10's connection with it all. Paul said, for this end, we toil, we strive. In other words, this is why we discipline ourselves. Because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Notice the word because. The word because indicates the reason for our toiling, striving, and training ourselves. Because we have set our hope on the living God, because God is our Savior, we discipline ourselves. See, false teaching tells us to that to believe that discipline is our hope, or we can discipline ourselves to get God to be our Savior. That's false hope. Christianity says something different. Jesus already is our hope, and because he's our hope, we discipline ourselves. See, friends, when you open your Bible as a Christian, you're not opening your Bible in the morning so that God will somehow make all the stars align and your day will be great. No, you're reading your Bible in the morning because God is your living hope. When you pray, you are going to God to communicate with your Father because He is your Savior. Not so that He'll become your Savior. See, you're disciplining yourself because of what He has done. Not so that He will do something different. See, pastors and Christians are to discipline themselves for godliness by looking to Christ, not their discipline. This is the reason why Jesus must be the central figure in our teaching in our lives. Believe me, you don't want a self-made pastor. A self-made pastor will be worried about self-glory. We want pastors and elders who are Jesus-made men, who are grace-made men. We, we want a pastor who, who, who will understand and see himself continuously in need of Jesus. That pastor who sees himself in need of Jesus will then continuously present before us Jesus as the central figure in life, discipline, and teaching. And the same holds true for a Christian. If our discipline is what makes us like Jesus, we're going to lose sight of our need of grace. We'll become self-righteous, proud, and independent. That's why we must discipline ourselves for godliness by looking to Christ and because of Christ. See, it's evident in the text, when you look at the text, that Paul felt that others were going to see Timothy's life. Notice verse 12, Paul wanted Timothy to set an example to believers in what he said, how he loved, trusted in God, and in his purity. And in verse 15, he wrote for him to do these things so that others would see his progress. See, a pastor can't do these things, can't be an example in these things without being disciplined or being watchful. None of us can. That's why Christ must be central to our discipline, our life, and our teachings as pastors and as Christians. But this doesn't mean your pastor will be perfect. I think you know that from my sermons through the years, right? Uh, I continue to be amazed that you keep coming back after hearing the previous week's sermon, and I go home, and Jill says, what did you think? I said, I don't know. We'll see if anybody's back tomorrow or next Sunday, right? 
Hopefully we're giving before you a transparency about us that says we're real, we sin, we have problems, we have issues, we have things that we're just like you in this life. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but it also means that we're not going to be comfortable with areas of sin in our lives or areas of hypocrisy in our lives. And that we'll be honest about our need for God and others to speak into our lives and and we'll allow God to discipline us and we will discipline ourselves accordingly. I think Paul Tripp writes to pastors very well when he wrote these words. And see if you don't see yourself here a little bit. Pastors, we're all still a bit of a mess. We're all at times very poor examples of the truths we teach. We all have the dark ability to expound a passage that lauds God's grace, yet be a husband or father of ungrace in the car on the way home. You can teach about the self-sacrificing nature of love and be self-centered and unwilling to serve at home. You and I can define biblical humility but be proud of what we know and what we've accomplished. We talk about the beauty of forgiveness yet harbor bitterness against families or leaders that have opposed us. We can teach well what it looks like to be content, but we quickly grumble and complain when the going gets hard. We talk about a heart of ministry, but when, when we get home, all we want is to be left alone. We're all capable of being self-righteous, proud, judgmental, controlling, easily angered, bitter, and demanding. We sometimes act as if we're entitled to our blessings. We often forget how much we need everything we teach. We give evidence every day that we are people in the midst of our sanctification, in the middle of our sanctification, that we, that we still need the moment by moment rescue of grace. See, discipline does not change our need for Christ. A heart set on the hope of Christ is a heart that will discipline itself to be more like Jesus. And friends, listen, we want pastors like that. Right? We want pastors, and we want to be Christians like that. Right? Good pastors and Christians will discipline themselves to be godly by looking to Christ. Last thing you're going to notice that we were to do is to find your identity in Christ. <clears throat> it's very interesting the personal note that Paul makes to Timothy in verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. Timothy, being a young man, probably in his mid to late 30s, needed to hear this. I remember vividly, I was 21 years old, preaching before a very large crowd at our church on a Thursday night gathering, and I mentioned my age twice. I got done with the sermon, and as I walked down from the sermon, one of our associate pastors met us at the bottom, met me at the bottom of the stairs. And he grabbed me aside, and he looked me right in the eye, and he said, listen, if you mention your age another time in the pulpit at this church, I will personally walk up in the pulpit and drag you out of it. And then he said this, when you're in the pulpit, you are God's man for God's time to preach God's word. I don't need to hear about your age. That was his very kind way of saying, let no one look down on your youthfulness. But also Paul said something else in verse 14. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which the elders who ordain you noticed and don't forget what they thought about you when they laid hands on you and prayed for you. You know, this is Paul telling Timothy, don't forget who you are in Christ. Find your identity in Christ, not in what your critics say, not in what your church members who love you might think about you. Timothy, you're unique, made by God, gifted by God, called by God, and recognized by others as called by God. Don't ever forget that. Yes, you might be young, but you're called by God and gifted by God to do a task. Now imagine how comforting that would be for young Timothy. A man super discouraged, 
fighting against spiritual wolves coming after him and his church, don't forget God has called you. And others whom you respect, who love Jesus, confirm that calling in your life as well. You might wonder, why why would Paul go after this with Timothy? Why would he say to Timothy, don't forget who you are in Christ? Why do pastors need to hear this? Why do you need to hear this? Well, listen, we all know, don't we? I mean, in ministry and life, you feel the expectations that others have on you and the disappointments that you've caused them by the things that you've done or said. You feel the weight of those who invested so deeply in your life and you want to make them proud and honored by the way that you serve and care. You feel the weight of the hopes and dreams that others have and that you have for your church and for the gospel impact that that church might have in the community and around the world. You feel the weight of the desires and expectations and spiritual needs of the people that God has called you to serve. You know that people are always watching you. Always. You're, you're living in a fishbowl, the, the enormous fishbowl that everywhere you go, somebody's gonna nitpick something that you might have said or did. You know your, you know your critics. You can still hear their accusations in your mind. You regularly feel that opposition over and over again. And when you come to church, you want everybody to be happy and pleased and satisfied with what has happened and you could care less about if there's drums or choruses or hymns. And over time, at some point, If you are sane, you will begin to question yourself, your calling, your gifts, and wonder if you've completely missed the boat entirely. You ever felt that way? You see why we need to be reminded of who we are in Christ? And Paul does this in the text in two main ways that you've got to see. The first in verse 10 He reminds Timothy and us of the God who saved us. Do you see what he does to Timothy? Pastors, Christians, don't ever forget you are first a child of God. First a child of God. Yeah, you might be the pastor of this church. You might be the CEO of that corporation. You might be the employee here or the father over here. But listen, you are first a child of God. By grace you have been saved. And that is not a work of yourselves. It is a gift of God. That will keep us humble and grateful and worshipful. It will save us from the performance trap. And let me tell you from experience, it will save you from the fear of man. When you've got to say hard things and hard moments and you have no idea how these people are going to take it. And yet you've got to walk in the room and say it anyway. You need to know that first... You are a child of God, that God cares about you, that Jesus came for you. See, your pastor needs to hear the gospel preached to his own heart regularly in a very real sense. The most important congregation that he preaches to every week is his own heart. That's why, listen, on Tuesday mornings, on Wednesdays, when you click the clock from 10 to about 12.30, you should know something. In that study over there, your pastor is preaching the gospel to his heart to get ready to preach the gospel to your heart. Because we need to hear the gospel. We need to know, once again, we're the child of God. So listen, if you're discouraged, if you are doubting yourself, 
If you're wondering about your life and your life's mission and direction, Christian, listen, remember this above all things. You are a child of God, bought with the precious blood of the Lamb. Jesus has come for you. Your God has come to save you. You are His very own. And He cares about you. He cares about you. No matter what your critics or your friends may say, you're a child of God. Don't forget that. But the second thing Paul does, which is fascinating, is in verse 14 as he reminds Timothy and us of what others saw, what others affirmed. See, other people noticed Timothy's calling. Others affirmed his gifts. Others saw that he was a man of God who could serve the church as an elder. See, this is evidence of of an ordination where elders laid hands on him and prayed for him and appointed him to this task. Paul does not want him to forget this. Notice something what Paul does not say. Paul does not tell Timothy, Timothy, how do you feel about your calling today? What are your thoughts about your gifts after that sermon bombed? How do you feel about yourself after you made a stupid analogy again in the church? Notice he also doesn't tell him to suck it up and put on his big boy pants and this is what God called you to do, figure it out. And he doesn't ask him to live his truth and to speak his dreams and ideas into existence so they might manifest somewhere. It's not what he does. You know what he does? He points him to the objective truth of the gospel and to objective friends who affirmed his calling. See, sometimes it is essential in life and ministry to be reminded of where other people see God at work in your life. Others' affirmation is a reminder that God is indeed at work. Friends, this is why in the church we must preach the gospel to each other and remind one another of where we see God at work. Listen, you want a pastor who doesn't forget who he is in Christ and who daily leans in to the grace and power of God. I can tell you this, your pastors want the same things for you. That you daily see your need, that you daily understand who you are in Christ, and you're daily leaning into God's grace. And the best way to help each other is to do this, to preach the gospel to one another, to remind each other that we're children of God, and to speak where we see God at working in one another's life. See, you might say, well, listen, the pastor is this super spiritual guy. No, get your, get that out of your mind. He's the top leader and you know, he's like the first Marine into the, get that out of your mind. The pastor is simply a guy who is one beggar showing other beggars where the bread's at. And one day the tables will be flipped and you better be ready. We're just Christians walking this thing out together so that one day I can walk you arm in arm right to the throne of God and say, God, here are your people. And you say, this is our pastor. Did he make it okay? That we all walk this out together. We must be a church that preaches the gospel and keeps Christ central to this. And there's one last concise point that I want to make before we leave today is that this passage should remind you of the great shepherd, the great pastor, who is Jesus. See, every pastor, including your elders, we're going to fail. We're going to sin. We're going to hurt you at some point. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. My prayer is we don't do it very often. (laughs) 
and that we're never comfortable with it. And if we do, that we come to you humbly to seek your forgiveness and, and reconcile that situation and deal with it with humility. But listen, our weaknesses, our sins, our foibles, our idiosyncrasies, the way we do business should show you something. There is only one pastor who will never hurt you. And he is the pastor that your earthly pastors should be pointing you to every time you meet with them. See, if we're all looking to the great shepherd, the great pastor Jesus, we're going to put pastoral ministry right in its right box where it should be. Pastoral ministry is given as a gift to the church to remind us of our need for the great pastor. See, so, so even if you have a good pastor, listen, he's not Jesus. And we will tell you regularly that we're not Jesus. If you have a bad pastor, he's not Jesus. And we'll tell you regularly we're not Jesus. Your great pastor will never leave you nor forsake you. He will always be there for you. He knows your sorrows and your successes. And when your earthly imperfect pastors aren't available or can't help, guess what? Your great pastor can. And so when you read the text, just just step out of it for a moment. And you do a couple things. If you go to church here, hopefully you are thanking God that you have pastors that will point you to the great shepherd. I hope. If you go to a church, if this is one you think you have bad pastors, we could talk about that later at some point offline and not do that here publicly. If we got bad, we're not Jesus and we're going to point you still to Jesus. But one thing we can say, pastors and people who go to church, we have the greatest pastor. And he has called the church, the leaders of the church, to point you to that great pastor. So let's pray. Father, we recognize that this is something that we need today. There are friends today that, and even pastors here that are discouraged, doubting themselves, doubting their calling. And we need to be freshly reminded that we're your people. There are churchgoers today that need to be reminded that they are God's people first and foremost. They're They may be a mom, but they're a child of God first. may be a husband, but they're a child of God first. They may be a friend, but they're a child of God first. We we need to be reminded of the truth of Jesus. And we thank you for doing that this morning. And then, God, I know that I pray and I, I, I speak for our elders that we thank God for the work that you're doing at CLF. We thank God for our people who lean in who are supportive, who are exhortive, who encourage us, who, who uh, ask us great questions, who are willing to hold us accountable. And we thank you that they understand the seriousness of what we do here, all of us. I pray that you would help us be a church that is even more God-centered that your glory, the advancement of your gospel would consume our hearts more and more each day. And that while we love well right now, help us to abound in the work of love all the more. 
Help us to be of great encouragement to one another by pointing out the gospel and then pointing out evidences of God's grace in one another's life. So the Father, each of your people that are represented here would one day stand before your throne and you would say, enter in. Enter in. All because of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' precious, preeminent, perfect name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.